We are back in beautiful Devon on a glorious spring day with the sun shining down, a little stream running past, and we're in the village of Exton, just between Exeter and Exmouth, um, near the River X, of course. And we're here to see two worlds collide, the world of literature and the world of folk music, because we are here to meet the wonderful Peter Knight's Gig Spanner Big Band, uh, featuring Edgelarks, who you've heard on this podcast before, and they're collaborating with the writer Raina Wynn, author of the best-selling book The Salt Path, about her walks along the southwest coastal path. And it's a really fascinating creative combination. And of course, we're going to go for a walk on the southwest coastal path. Here is Peter Knight. Hello, Peter. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. So what's going on in the Village Hall here? Well, it's quite an interesting project, all to do with the Southwest Coast Path, and an extraordinary book that was written by Raina Wynne. Quite extraordinary. Called The Salt Path. The Salt Path. And it's a combination of old songs from around the path, and new words from Raina. And she hasn't taken the words from the book. She's written new words, which is absolutely fantastic that she's done that, for this project. And yesterday morning was the first time that the two things joined together. And it was quite emotional, I have to say. I can imagine. So what sort of songs are you choosing? Well, we're choosing songs that are from that path. And some songs I knew, like the Cadwith Anthem and the Padstow May song, but we found other more obscure songs. And for those who don't know the band, just tell us a little bit about that, because after you were in Steel Eye Span, you then formed the Gig Spanner Trio with the three of you, but there is a big expanded band here, isn't there, with other members? Well, there is. The trio had a couple of gigs, I think, Nettlebed Folk Club, the Roses Theatre in, in Tewkesbury, and we'd heard Hannah and Phil who are now the Edgelarks, at a festival, and they were absolutely lovely. And we invited them to guest with us on those two gigs, and it was just absolutely lovely. I was also playing with Squeezy John. So we did another gig there, and we had Squeezy John, and I just said, well, this is, this is the band. So that's now the gig span, a big band. So there's Sasha on percussion, yep. Roger on guitar, yep. and you on, on the fiddles and various other things. And then we add in the Edgelarks, and then we add in John Spires. That's right. What a racket that must make. It must be amazing. Well, it's absolutely lovely because they're all open-minded musicians. I'm very happy to leave the formal score and to explore the possibilities spontaneously. And we're all open to that. And as a musician, that's very important to me that you don't just go out and play the lines and the parts. It's a waste of time for me that I need to feel that I can, if something comes into my head, then I can go with it. And you need musicians that can also do that. And you end up with a very rich music at the end of the night. And you say that the first time you played with Rainer's words was very emotional. W will it be an emotional experience for people who come to the gigs, do you think? Well, who knows? I mean, when you work on something, you're not sure whether it's really fantastic or a pile of shit. You really don't know. And that's lovely, you know. And um, as I say, yesterday, Raina turned up, da, 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 she started reading the words. I just welled up. It was beautiful. And then the music came in and I thought, this is really going to be good. You know, so yesterday was the first time where I thought it's all the hard work that we've all done is, has been worth it. So I think people will really enjoy it, actually. If we go back inside, do you think you can give us a taste of the music? Well, I think we probably can. Yes. Be great. Yeah, yeah. Let's go in. OK. Rolling, all on the rolling. 
It's lovely to see you and to hear that music from the band is, is quite extraordinary. Tell me how this project started for you. Who, who approached you? How did it all begin? I was approached by uh, Deborah, Deborah Knight. She just asked me if I'd like to take part in, in this to create a collaboration of words and music. And uh, I'd already followed Gig Spanner and Edgelarks, Hannah and Phil, 
because I already had a real interest in folk music. So when they approached about this project, it seemed too good to miss. And, and how has it developed from there? How has the process been? Have you been writing on your own and they've been rehearsing on their own and this is the first coming together of it? It is, yes, it is. I wrote the pieces completely separate to them. They've been rehearsing the songs and then we came together yesterday and started to put them together and um, I think it's going to be something quite magical, actually. It's already has a really strong feeling about it. And tell me about the pieces you've written. What, what was the inspiration for them and how have you approached that? Well, Gigspanner have collected these songs and that was the basis that we began the work from. But they've collected these songs that are historic to the South West, have their origins here. So I took that as the basis and then I worked from that, thinking about the South West as being more than just its history being what it is today, being where we've come from. So looking at the old traditions of the area, the old crafts, and how they might have moved on from the times when those songs were written. What sort of traditions are you talking about? I'm thinking about things such as the withy weavers. Um, so the, the withies were the old lobster pots that were woven out of willow. And there are hardly any of those weavers left now. We're down to the last few. And the same with the Gansey knitters. The Gansey knitters used to line the streets of the old fishing villages. The fishermen would knit their jumpers through the winter, their wives would knit. The whole families would knit, but that tradition is almost gone now. But then also, this is an area of tin mines and that was such a strong part of our communal life here and that has gone and that has transitioned now into something else. So what's, what's taking their place? What sort of things are, are, are springing up instead? Very much. It is about the tourism and it is about things that are based on tourism. So it's moved away from that connection to the land, to the sea and we're going forwards in a different direction now. But also this coast path, it is such a haven for wildlife, for biodiversity and in itself it is just an incredible natural wonder. So I tried to bring all of those emotions into what I've written. So are you in a way doing what the musicians are doing which is that they're taking something ancient but they're reinterpreting it for a modern audience? Are you doing the same with the words that you've written that you're you're playing on those traditions but you're thinking also about contemporary life? Well, yes, in a way, because a lot of those old traditions on which those songs are based have now been lost or are fading or slipping away from us. So I wanted to capture an essence of the old Southwest having being almost at its final moments, really. And we're moving into another time. But also this landscape is so ancient, it's so old, it holds so much um, of our physical history that I wanted to bring a feeling of those two things together, the human and the landscape, sort of like in transition, really. Peter said that it was very emotional when you first put the words and music together. Did you feel that too? It was. It was a really powerful feeling. The words alone, you know, go okay. The music was good, but when we put them together, it really had a sort of really powerful resonance that made us all just catch a breath for a moment, I think. So, yeah. Would you come for a walk with us on the coastal path? I'd love to, yes. Let's go. So we're climbing up now from the beach onto the coastal path. And Hannah's yeah, Hannah Martin from Edgelark. Hannah, where are we? We are just at Orkham Point in Exmouth. Right, so there's a nice view from here, isn't there? Yeah, it's beautiful. I particularly like it because it uh, looks right across to Brixton, which is where I'm from. So you can see oh. very head in the distance there. Oh yes, <laughs> and it's a lovely day actually. There was a spot of rain as we were getting here, but the sun's back out now and the clouds are clearing there's a bit of a blue sky so uh, it's a good day for a walk on the coastal path I think it's quite a good day for a swim actually uh, do you think so yeah. <laughs> maybe when we finished up here that could be the moment 
and it's uh, it's quite busy. You can know somebody riding a horse on the beach. And which way do we go here? Straight on. Down there, yeah. And Raina's here with us, and so is Peter. Um, Raina, is this a, a bit of the path that you walked on your original journey? Yes, we walked down here, heading west. What was it like that time? It was really hot, I remember. Uh, it was a late summer, really warm, the beach was full of people. One of those really calm, still, late summer days. Beautiful. What stage were you at in your journey then? Well, we were getting towards the end by then, because we ended the journey in Polruan. So we were into the last two weeks of the journey. So were you tired? Yes, goodness yes, exhausted. I wonder if there was a sort of contrast between you and Moth coming up here and then all these happy holiday makers enjoying themselves on the beach. Well, did you feel envious of them? Or? We did in a way, but it was as if we were in a different world by then, as if we were inhabiting a completely different space. As if their life down there, of happy family life on the beach, was completely separate to our life here within the, the gorse and the brambles. And that seemed to be where we where we belonged at that time. Right. And the path felt like home by then, did it? It did, yes. It felt more like home than, than anywhere, really. Yeah. Probably still does. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who haven't read the book, can you tell us what started the journey and how it all began? We, uh, we were living on a, uh, in a house in Wales. It was a place we'd lived in for 20 years. It had been our home where our children had grown up. It was, it was everything to us. It was our home, our business, our main source of income, really. And we'd had a fantastic 20 years there. It was ideal life, really. But sadly, in the background, we'd had an ongoing financial dispute with a friend that saw us being served with an eviction notice. They gave us seven days to leave our home, so seven days to pack down 20 years of life. And it was in those seven days that my husband, Moth, was diagnosed with a terminal illness. So we lost everything in one go, really, home, business and our future. And just um, tell us about yeah. his illness and the diagnosis. He was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease called corticobasal degeneration, which has, there's no treatment, there's no cure, there's no way back, really. And what was the um, prognosis at that time? Possibly two years of mainly really very quickly declining health. So it felt almost as if that moment was our last moment, our last moment of possibility. So how did the idea of walking the southwest coast path come about? It was at the very last moment when we were about to leave our house, the bailiffs were knocking at the door and we were hiding under the stairs, not... Not, not probably thinking that some miracle was going to happen and we wouldn't have to go, but because we just didn't feel ready to leave. It, I don't think we would ever have been ready to leave. But it was at that moment that I saw a book in the packing case and it was 500 Mile Walkies. It was the story of a, a young man that walked the southwest coast path with a dog. And just in that moment, it seemed like the most obvious thing to do, just to fill a rucksack and go for a walk. And so that's what we did. So what did you have on the, on the walk with you? We had our tent, sleeping bags, a little gas stove, a change of clothes that very quickly turned into no change of clothes, and um, some waterproofs that let the rain through. And that was more or less it, really. Oh, wow. That was. And, and, and presumably you were no money? Hardly any money at all. We started out with about £40 a week, quickly deteriorated to about 30 And as you know, on the south coast in the summer... That doesn't go very far because, um, yeah, it's the south coast in the summer. Yeah. And what about Moth's health? Because was it difficult for him to walk at all when you set off in the beginning? Well, when we started walking, it was really difficult because he was struggling to even put his coat on without help. And so certainly picking up the rucksack, carrying the rucksack all day, in and out of the tent, it was really quite difficult. But as the miles passed, things started to change with his health. Well, it got better. It did, and we'd, we'd really been told and we'd been led to believe that was impossible. But as the miles passed, and maybe about 200 miles, actually we noticed he was walking a little bit more steadily. He had a little more strength. And then it came to one night, one night when we camped on a beach, and it was one of those beautiful summer balmy days when the sea's like syrup and the air's still and there were dolphins in the bay and... So we camped where we thought was way above the high tide line. But then 
about three o'clock in the morning, we realised we weren't above the high tide line at all because the, uh, the sea was about a metre from the tent. So we had to jump out and grab the whole tent fully erected and carry it above our heads running up the beach. And as we dropped it at the cliff edge at the, at the top of the beach, we realised that yeah, this man who had been unable to put his coat on without help had just carried a fully erected tent above his head running up a beach. And it felt like a miracle. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And mm. and there must have been some really gruelling moments because this path is not an easy route to follow, is it? I mean, there's some really steep ups and really steep downs. And there must have been times when he was finding it very difficult, but also you were finding it very difficult. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's quite an extreme path. You think coast path, but actually it's 630 miles of roller coaster because it's got an ascent that's equivalent to climbing Everest nearly four times. So that tells you just how up and down it is. So there were times when it was really hard. Yeah, not not just physically hard. We were finding it really mentally quite difficult because we were still carrying all the pain anxiety of what we'd gone through and as well as that the fear of what the future would hold but there was something happened on those headlands really i think maybe it was the focus on just the next step and the next step but i think it allowed us to let go of that to move beyond did you ever feel guilty in a way for taking him on the journey did you ever feel that for him it was so challenging that you maybe had done the wrong thing Oh, constantly. Constant sense of guilt. That was probably weighing heavier than my rucksack because that's your instinct when there's somebody that you care for is ill is to look after them, protect them, keep them safe and warm. And I was doing the absolute opposite. I dragged him out onto a headland where we had no food. We were cold or wet most of the time and I was just watching him suffer. But then until that magical moment on the beach when suddenly we realised, actually, there was some benefit from this. It says a lot about his love and trust in you, that he was there with you and that you were supporting each other. Or maybe that it was just very patient or tolerant, I'm not sure. <laughs> Listen, I can hear some fiddle playing in the background here because Peter and Hannah, I think, are going to sing a song about Moth, your husband. So shall we go and find out what they've, what they've got in yes. store for us? Just getting your fingers into gear. That's, that's amazing. And just in the shade of this tree, looks like a, a sort of major pine tree that's come down here. To see Peter standing here by the roots is so great. And now the crows are joining in. They always do when I play that bit. <laughs> Hannah's tuning her guitar. Hannah, just tell us about the song that you're going to sing for us. I'm going to sing a song that I wrote called Salt Song, which was inspired by Raina's story. But really I was thinking about the idea of salt as a metaphor. We use it for so many things when you start thinking of all the sayings that include salt in the English language. It's interesting. And I ended up thinking about the sort of duality of the idea of salt, how if it's in a cut it really stings, but it's also an antiseptic, that kind of necessary pain of the world I suppose that everybody experiences Wonderful, well let's hear it in the lee of this tree <laughs> and Raina's going to hold the book because it's a newly written song It is, yes But there's 
is a parched road to walk and the journey might be too long. We always held to these four walls to our landlocked home. And they said nobody worth their soul would be forced to roam. There is salt in my blood, there is salt in the deep of my So beautiful, thank you very much indeed. And uh, the gulls somehow added to the atmosphere, didn't they? Yes. Singing, singing above you. Raina, what was it like to stand between the two musicians and listen to that song? So moving. I just feel so honoured that they've written something so beautiful and I'm part of this. Well, yeah. Your words have inspired that and your yeah. journey has inspired that, yeah. that song. That's it's just such a, such a beautiful thing. And, and I wonder, Hannah, if you could... Tell us what it meant to you when you read Raina's book. Well, that's that's really where the songs come from because I read Ray's book on the recommendation of a friend near the beginning of lockdown and um, I was having quite a tough time. I was feeling quite... Um, yeah, it was just really difficult, you know. We lost all our work and had various personal tragedies sort of happen and, and it just gave me so much hope. It was just such a wonderful experience to read that book like it really sometimes a book actually feels like it changes your life doesn't it and and Ray's did that for me so thank you <laughs> is that a common reaction that you've had Raina from from readers people have said you know the books change my life but I don't think books do change your life I think books just change the way you think and that allows you to change your life yeah mm. I think I think that's they just open doors don't they I can see, Peter, you were saying earlier how emotional it was when you first brought the music together with Raina's words. I can see this is going to be an emotional project. Absolutely. And for me, words or music, I think they're a sort of veneer. And what gives them value is what you load them with. A writer, it's the emotion that Ray, for instance, loads those words with. And as a musician, for me, I have to draw on everything, pleasure, pain, my life, everything, in order to play, in order to give the music, music. Otherwise, it's just notes and it's just sound. So, yeah, I mean, as I said to you earlier, yesterday morning, 
hearing Ray's words for the first time and the music, I, I think we were all losing it a little bit, just going, wow, this is, this is very special. It's been very emotional to stand here on the South West Coastal Path and hear that music played. Thank you so much. And very well. We're going to let you and Hannah go now because I think you're going to go back to rehearsals. We're going to have a coffee first. <laughs> OK, fair enough. <laughs> and I think, Ray, you're going to go for a walk with us now, if that's all right. Yes, that's yeah. fine. But I am missing out on the coffee. Well, we'll get you a coffee on the way back. <laughs> So another thing, Rainer, that struck me about your book was that it is, a, in a way, a tribute to the power of walking, which is obviously one of the things that this podcast is deeply enthusiastic about. I wonder if you could tell us what walking this path meant to you, more than just putting one foot in front of another. I think there's something underrated about walking. It's something that we're actually built to do. So when you allow your body to to move into that natural rhythm, it connects you in a way. It connects you to the landscape you're walking across, but also to something a little deeper in yourself, I think. Something, Something that we maybe overlook in normal life. That sense of being sort of grounded within yourself. It's hard to describe, really. You need to go for a long walk to feel it. Exactly. No, well, we've done a lot of that. And, and I also think that you have very good conversations on walks because you walk alongside a companion and time is not of the essence. So you're not in a... There's no deadline or no end to the conversation. And the, the rhythm somehow aids conversation. Did you find that? Or did you find sometimes that you had to have long periods of silence? I think it does. I met someone in the Highlands last year who has this theory about walking, this theory that a long walk allows you to open up to honesty. And I think that's what walking conversations give you. They give you a a much deeper sense of the person you're, you're with than you often feel in a coffee shop, say. Yes, absolutely. And we've had some, some wonderful encounters on, on, on our walks. But what about the downsides of it? You know, because you know, when you were living in that very visceral way in just your tent and the elements came in, what, what, were, the, what were the difficult moments? What were the times when you found it really hard? Well, for us, probably the most difficult time was was being hungry. I mean, a hunger isn't something that we normally encounter in Western society. We can get, you know, a bit peckish before lunchtime, but we don't really feel that, that depth of hunger that you have when you actually literally have no food. And it, it can change the way you think. I think lack of food can drive you to keep going it can make you stop it can affect your physical self but it affects you mentally as well i think do you lose your temper and that kind of thing well yes yeah <laughs> definitely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of hungry moments <laughs> yeah and did you lose your temper with each other sometimes over small things when you were under those stressful situations very rarely actually moth and i we've been together since we were teenagers been through most of the ups and downs that life throws our way and so really just to be on that path yes we'd lost our house yes we lost all our money yes he was ill but at the root of all of that beneath all of that it was still just moth and myself just living our life I mean I think really reading both your books that they're love stories Um, they're about your loving relationship with with each other. Was that one of the things that you wanted to convey to us? Well, I wrote The Salt Path for Moth. It wasn't written to be published as a book. I wrote it for him because after we stopped walking, he started to lose his memory quite a lot. But he became more sedentary. He was studying for a degree and that sedentary time allowed his illness to sort of come back full on. And he, he was starting to lose his memory. And losing memories of a, of a path that, for me, has felt like such a strong, important part of our lives. And um, I didn't want him to lose that. So I was really... I wrote that to capture it for him, to capture the feeling of 
what we'd experience, the feeling of how it had changed our lives. Because you, you um, would, would you say to him, oh, do you remember the bit when we did so-and-so? And he'd say, well, no, yeah. I don't, I'm afraid. Yeah, I can remember telling him about something and say, oh, do you remember the man with the blackberries? And that had been such a powerful story for me. And when he said he'd forgotten it, I, I knew I had to do something to capture it for him. Because we'd met two old gentlemen when we were walking on a really foggy, misty headland. And uh, we saw them coming up from a cove below. One of them, you know, fully dressed, hat, coat, gloves, the whole lot. The other one in his bathers. But he was holding a little plastic box of blackberries. And when we got closer to them, he offered me one. And I didn't want to take it because up to that point, the blackberries I'd eaten had been tart and sharp and really not nice. But I was just being polite, so I took one anyway. And as I bit into it, it was, it was like nothing I'd ever eaten. It was the most intense purple autumnal flavour. It tasted like the headlands. And I said, do you know, what is this? It's some rare species that grows down in a cove. And he said, no, this is something so special. You only get it when the mist comes in and lays a layer of salt on a perfectly ripe blackberry. And what you get is something that chefs can't create and money can't buy. It's a gift of time and nature. My mouth's watering. And I just held on to that. I held on to that idea of a gift of time and nature because for me, that's what that path was for us, that walk. It, was, it felt like a gift. And when Moth said he'd forgotten that, I knew I'd got to capture it for him. I knew I had to keep it for him. So that's what the Salt Path was. It was a record of that walk written for him. So that when he read it, he would feel like he was right there on the path right next to me. So that's maybe why it comes across so personal, because yeah. it was written for him. And, and when you say it was written for him, how did you do that? Did you write on a word processor or on a computer or yes. in longhand or what? what? I wrote it on my laptop and then I printed it off and uh, it sorted out black and ended up pink as the uh, printer <laughs> ran out of ink and I uh, just tied it up with string and gave it to him for his birthday. At what, that point, that is all it was. That was what was his reaction was. when he read it? It's like, is this what you've been doing? I knew you'd been doing something, but... <laughs> <laughs> and did he realise then that it might have a wider audience than just no. him? No, he didn't. But my daughter was staying with us at the time and she read it before he did. And she said, you know, Mum, it's not bad. You should do something with this. I was like, mm, what do you mean, do something? Like, get a binder for it, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I was really, at that point, wasn't thinking it would be a book at all. And had you ever written anything before? No. So no. you just sat down and because one of the things that's so wonderful about it is your gift for writing you obviously have a an incredible gift for writing but you hadn't known that before no no when I was a child I really thought I was going to grow up to be a writer that was like a childhood dream but life gets in the way doesn't it and I did other things and I never did write so when I sat down to write I think what I wanted to convey was the real feeling of that moment and so whenever I read back through what I'd written and it didn't actually feel like the experience, then I rewrote it until it did. Because I thought, if I can't feel it, then Moth's certainly not going to feel it. And that was my aim, was for him to feel that moment, to feel this, to hear the gulls, to smell the salt, to feel the wind. That's what I wanted.
rehearsal room is John Spires <laughs> taking a break between songs. John, I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about how the research for this project has been going. Well, it started off during the pandemic. We've been on our own in our isolation areas, looking up stuff on the internet and drawing on our memory banks of folk music that we've picked up over the years. And so what sort of songs did you find? I've found a couple of nice interesting ones. There's a song called 10,000 Miles, which is quite a well-known song, but it's quite an unusual version that comes from Dorset near Bridgewater, which is kind of where the coast path starts on this story. And I love it because it's quite deep, but it's also in quite colloquial language and so it it makes it feel more real you know the the lady that it was collected for clearly spoke with a broad somerset accent and sang with one as well i like it for that it gets to the point really quickly as well like some of these folk songs you know there's no messing around it gets straight to the the nub of the matter what is the nub of the matter it starts off being about being separated from your partner you know and, and about how that's not a nice thing in your life so someone goes away to sea and has to work but then by the fourth verse it's got incredibly deep and it's all about you know if the world came to an end we'd still be together in our hearts and things like that so it's it's quite beautiful and it gets there really quickly proper folk song <laughs> i'm taking it that the sea is the constant theme through most of this music is it well because it's from the coast path obviously we've tried to collect as much of the music from as close to the path as we can but it's also about just the beauty of nature some of the songs another one i found is called lemon day which is a version of lemaidy lemon day in this song is the name of a character in the song and it's just a love song possibly unrequited love but it calls on lots of elements of nature which again feature heavily in rainer's book and she's written some absolutely stunning words for us to work with, and I think it's going to work really well. crashing back down onto blocky granite cliffs. 
The light is fading, but not the noise. The noise rises and deafens and consumes. Where are we to go? What are we to do? No point speaking, we won't be heard. His hand leaves his pocket and holds out its contents. Here, at the edge of all things, at the end of everything, when all life and choice and future seems lost, he holds out his hand. No Maybush here, just a half-eaten chocolate bar and a few small coins. He closes his hand and we look out to sea, as a sea that lifts and swells in black and green. Nothing behind but loss, nothing ahead but water and air. He looks at me, this man who has shared it all looks at me, and I know. He takes my hand and we turn to face the storm, face the rain drenching our skin, face the wind, feel its power and embrace it. We are flying fish in the salt spew. No idea where we're going, no idea where we'll land, but the hand holds mine and we turn south. There is no going back, there is only forwards, forwards into the unknown with hope driven on the salt wind. And love, always love. actually standing here we can hear the sea down below and the sea is blue and stretching away forever on our right we just stopped at the at the edge of a cliff looking down onto the beach and the and the waves coming up so we can smell the smells and hear the sounds that you would have smelt and heard but the other thing that you capture so vividly is nature and the impact of the natural world and the birds and animals and plants that are around you is that something that you've always appreciated because of your background? I think so. I grew up on a farm, so most of my childhood was spent just playing in the fields or in the woods or stalking rabbits or <laughs> whatever it was I did as a child. So that was very much who I was, was, was that connection to nature, almost second nature, rather than something I had to think about. It was part of who I was, who I am. I uh, what about giving it to a, a third party, as it were? So you've shown it to Moth, you've shown it to your daughter but then you show it to somebody in the outside world. Were you worried about judgment? Oh, goodness, yes, because because I hadn't written, because I'd got nothing to base that ability on. Yeah, it was quite terrifying, actually. When I gave it to an agent who picked it up straight away, and within maybe two weeks of having contacted her, we'd agreed that she would represent me. But when we first went to see the publishers, I can remember sitting in the publisher's office and uh, it was as if the walls were closing in. I didn't want anybody to talk to me about it because I felt like it was mine, it was moths, that's all it was. And I almost you know, ran out of the door. I think had the editor not appeared at that moment, it, there might have been no salt path. <laughs> <laughs> Let's walk on because we're, we're on the salt path, so we should, while we're talking about it, we should experience more of it. And then once it was published... Were you surprised at the reaction? Yes, I was incredibly surprised. I think I hadn't really thought about it. I thought about how people would react to it. So when actually thousands of people started to read it, it was a shock and it still remains so now, I think, that so many people have read it. And I wonder that, in a way, it transformed your fortunes. I mean, that you were, we've talked of you as a person homeless, a person with no money. Presumably it, it took the financial worry away a, a bit, but did it also have other results? Did it bring you a home? Well, yes, it did. Obviously, it had a result of I don't worry quite so much when the bills come through the door. But when it was first published, the publishers asked me to uh, do social media. Well, I had no idea what social media was. I'd never delved into it at all so I signed up to Twitter and somebody contacted me on there and said uh, I've read your book I really want to talk to you can I have your phone number and yeah I just gave him my phone number as you do as I thought you did at the time and anyway it turned out to be someone who who had read the book and connected with it on such a sort of personal level that he had to get in touch and he had a slightly neglected, very agriculturally overused cider farm just a few miles away from where I was living. 
but he had a, a dream that he'd be able to bring back the wildlife, bring back the biodiversity to a really neglected space and thought that we were the ones to help him do that. Right. And how did you feel about that? Well, <laughs> I mean, obviously he was offering everything that we really felt we needed. A more secure home, somewhere where we could be out in a natural environment all the time. But could we trust him? Could we ever, after what had happened, could we ever trust anyone again? Um, so there was a lot of hesitation over whether to, whether to actually take up the offer. And you, you tell this story in The Wild Silence, your second book. And so I'm aware that when you got there, it wasn't a bed of roses, was it? I mean, it wasn't an easy place to make well, your home or, or to start growing again. Well, that's it. As I said, it's been quite neglected. The land had been agriculturally really quite overused, so, so there was hardly any, any wildlife, hardly any biodiversity at all. But the house, <laughs> the house had been really neglected and it was incredibly damp, full of mice and really unloved. So you set about with your bare hands, as it were, trying to restore this place? Yes, we did, yes. So it's been an ongoing battle of damp and mice ever since. <laughs> right. How is it now? I'm not really sure who's won at the moment. but <laughs> <laughs> Have you got it in a, a state that you feel comfortable in now? Well, it's, it's habitable now. <laughs> the water doesn't come up through the floor in quite the same way that it did before. And the mice don't keep you awake at night. But <laughs> <laughs> and what about the orchard? Well, the orchard has been incredible to watch, actually. It's not what we've done. I think it's simply by stepping back from the land and doing less that has allowed it to recover, actually. So we've really completely reduced all the inputs, the chemical inputs onto the land, reduced the stocking levels, and it's allowed the land to recover in ways that we thought were maybe not possible, or maybe would certainly take a lot longer. But within three years, it's come back to being a, a thriving, biodiverse habitat that has wildlife there that most certainly wasn't there before. So what sort of uh, creatures do you see there? Well, there are clouds, clouds of insects there now that didn't exist in that space before. Pollinators everywhere. With those has come all the bird life that feeds on them. So it's now it's full of yellow hammers and yellow wagtails, pied wagtails, and all the raptors are, are coming in now. I saw a merlin yesterday. And there's uh, barn owl, buzzards, kestrels, so many things that live there now that weren't there before. That sounds amazing. And, and what about your crop of apples? Is that producing cider now? Yes, it is. We've been working on our cider blend, so that's an ongoing process. But, uh, but the apples are producing fantastically from trees that we thought were maybe uh, their productive life was over. But you took time out from all of that last year, I think, to do another epic walk. Where did you go? Well, we did, yes. We went to the northwest of Scotland. We were going to go to Cape Wrath, which is the most northwesterly point in Scotland, but it was closed for the military. So we began our walk at this little bay just south of there. Sandwood Bay? Shagra. Oh, right. Shagra, yeah. Because we've been to Sandwood Bay right up there with, with a musician called Duncan Chisholm. Oh, have you? It's a gorgeous yes. area of coastline, isn't it? It's absolutely stunning. It really is. And um, you set off from there, and where, where, where was your objective? We were going to walk the Cape Wrath Trail, which runs down to Fort William. But then one thing led to another, and then we did the West Highland Way, which starts in Fort William and runs down to Glasgow. And then, before we knew it, we were walking home. So you walked all the way down so to Cornwall? So we walked back to Cornwall, yeah. Oh my goodness, how many miles is that? That's about a thousand miles. Right, yeah, okay. It's quite a way. Yeah. And what time of year was this? We started in May last year and we got back in September. So it took us a while, <laughs> the whole summer. And were you sleeping in the tent on the way? Yeah, we were, yes. Right. Yeah, back in the tent. So, so what was it that made you want to do that again? Well, Moth's Health had, had held fairly well in the years following that I've written about in Wild Silence. 
But then suddenly, during lockdown, we've not been able to walk any great distance or, or actually be able to you know, get out as much as he needed to. His health had really started to deteriorate again. So we just thought, we'll give it one last try. We thought maybe it had gone too far, maybe his health had gone too far this time, but we thought we'd try one more time. And how was it for him? It was really difficult, and uh, not just for a short while this time, it was really difficult for, for many, many weeks. But slowly, very slowly, we did start to see a change. Um, and although it took a long time, he made it, he made it home. So. so how is he now? He's in good health now. He's in better health, I've got to say, than he's been for many years. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And what do the medical experts say about this? When, when you go back to them and say, well, the treatment we've found is walking a thousand miles, what do they say? They say uh, it shouldn't happen. So will, it, will this be uh, a new book? Yes, it will. It's uh, my third book. It's called Landlines, and it comes out in September. Right. Year. So we'll be able to learn all about that journey and also the effect on moth's health. You will, yes. Right. Yes, you will. So do you think you're going to have to go on doing these epic journeys? I think, I think we'll just keep walking. <laughs> I think we'll have to. <laughs> yeah. Come fill up your glasses and let us be merry For to rob and to plunder it is our intent As we roam through the valley where the lilies and the roses and the beauty of Kashmir lay drooping in his head. Time, it's elusive. We can't catch it, we can't hold it. It slips through our fingers as it passes us by. But there's something beautiful about a passage of time. It's the airbrush of history. Blurring the edges, smudging the lines, evening out those imperfections, leaving only a memory, a faint drift of remembrance that slips in and out of focus like the headlands in summer morning mist. All we have is what's recorded, time left behind in a grainy photograph, a half-remembered tune, a line from a song, a long-forgotten moment that loses meaning through the years. Stories and songs that we claim as our own. But if we peel back time, look behind the veil of tradition, whole new pictures take shape. As we roam through the valleys where the lilies and the roses and the beauty of Kashmir lay drooping his head. Time shifts and slips until we can no longer see a picture of the beauty of Kashmir. So claim it with our modern day eyes as a flower. But would we really think of a flower as male? Here is the land of the smuggler, the sailor, the high seas traveller, where as many traditions drift in on the tide as are born of the land. The southwest is a land of headlands and bays woodlands and water, to the caves in yonder mountain where the robbers retreat. Not a land of mountains. Of all landscapes in the southwest, there are none you can call mountains. But the world holds many wonders to be brought in on the tide. Many things to rob and to plunder, other than gold and rum, and the beauty of Kashmir lay drooping his head, drooping, drooping, like a flower plucked from its root, drooping down, low, fading, submitting, and the beauty of Kashmir lay drooping his head. Many things drift in on the tides, many people drift in on the tides. Tides from far away. Time and tides blur our history. Blur what we choose to remember. Blur what we choose to forget. And the beauty 
The Gig Spanner Big Band and Raina Wynn on the Southwest Coastal Path. Well, if you love what we do, we'd be delighted if you would become a patron of Folk on Foot. You'll get great rewards, including films of the songs that we have recorded on our travels across the UK. And we filmed all the music that the Gig Spanner Big Band performed here today, and we're putting it into Folk on Foot on film. And if you sign up to become a Folk on Foot patron, you'll get access to that, plus 150 other songs, plus the sets from all the Folk on Foot front room festivals. All you have to do to sign up is go to folkonfoot.com and click on the Support Us button. Every penny goes back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot, and without your help, we can't continue. So please, please sign up. Mm-hmm.